Really, the best way that I can uh, sum this one up would be to say Peter Weller punches Meg Foster in the face. Radio Drone. It is 1989, and I know there is some monster under the sea that is going to kill Josh Hadley. That is I. Welcome to Radio Drone. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Yes. Way to follow up. And <laughs> you, you want gold out of me, like right out of the gate. I got nothing. Peter, you got something? Well, 1989 would be. 25 years or so before I had an ulcer, so I would definitely love to be two years old again. I was 14, so you know what won't give you an ulcer, Peter? What's that? AdamandEve.com. If you oh. go there, you use the promo code DROME, and you get... What do they get, Cecil? Uh, oh, great. <laughs> Me again? God oh, damn yeah, it. I'm doing that to screw with you. Uh, you get... Three free DVDs. Six free DVDs. Six free DVDs. That's right. It's double the DVDs. Uh, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, free uh, U.S. shipping, uh, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Uh, yada, yada, yada. I set your ass up good, boy. Yes. Stay away from my ass. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> the reason I'm saying it's the reason I'm saying it's 1989 is we're going to look at how 1989 had this weird obsession with undersea monsters. No less than six undersea monster movies were produced in 1989. One of them didn't technically come out till 1990, but I'm giving it a pass because it was made in '89. After Alien, all of the studios had their Alien ripoff. After Star Wars, they all had their Star Wars ripoff. After Jaws, their Jaws ripoff, etc., etc. What do you think about 1989 had everyone saying, you know what, space is over, let's go to the other unexplored danger zone, but this time on Earth, underwater. Now, we knew James Cameron was making The Abyss, but because that had a bigger budget than everything else and a much longer production slate, do you think that all of this was to ride the wake of what, would, what they were assuming would be the monster hit, The Abyss? Or do you think it was just something, no pun intended, in the water in 89 that everybody wanted an under, underwater monster movie? I think it was both uh, in anticipation for it and possibly coincidence as well, because it's not necessarily an original idea. I mean, movies um, of, you know, deep sea exploration and encountering giant monsters that had uh, happened before. So some of those movies, I think, were just made as kind of an update on on that genre from um, like, what's uh, what's the one, the something leagues under the sea? I think that was in like the 50s or 40s or something that came out. Just because a movie's it. old doesn't make it ancient, Peter. Oh, shut up. But I could I could see it. Um, some of the movies that, that would be coming out in uh, the later 80s would maybe sort of be an update on that genre. But then there are... Uh, I, I do think that it some of them were in anticipation for Abyss, though, because you have um, a movie like Deep Star 6, for example. You have... Uh, it's specifically some kind of alien under the sea. Leviathan was sort of that thing as well. So I, I think it really could go either way because it could be coincidence as well because 
hell, the whole underwater alien thing goes back as far as H.P. Lovecraft, so you never really know. Why was 1989 the linchpin year for this kind of movie? I've talked about this a bunch of times on various videos. Hollywood loves trends, so when something comes along and they think that it's going to be the next big thing, studios all jump on board. I mean, there was the natural disaster movies in the uh, 70s, uh, then again in the 90s with like Volcano and Twister and all that. And in, in the late 80s, after James Cameron was blowing up, they got wind that he was doing an underwater movie. He was doing The Abyss. So a bunch of other studios were like, you know, well, we have to get our undersea movie out before this big undersea movie. Try to you know ride off of that hype train. I mean, a lot of times it's a good thing because there are uh, it's not like they just see that there is an underwater movie and they write it and get it into theaters. You know, it's these are scripts that they've had sitting around. No, 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 not necessarily. When we get to Roger Corman's, it was okay, literally well, I want to beat the abyss in theaters. This comes out in three weeks. And <laughs> that's that's Corman, though. That's what he does with everything. I'm yeah. talking like, you know, the non-Corman productions, you know, the Leviathans, the the deep uh, the deep star sixes. They're ones that, uh, you know, they they were they were just kind of, you know, happened to be the right place at the right time where it was like, all right, well, we've we've got these scripts. Let's let's make these movies. And so they got them. And they they kind of um, didn't rush them into production. It's just that mm -hmm. um, uh, the abyss was such a huge movie and ended up I mean, that whole did you ever watch any of the behind the scenes stuff on that? Oh, yeah. man. I've, what I've, a I've... nightmare shoot that well, was. Okay. <laughs> That was one of the only one of these that was actually shot underwater. Mm -hmm. Deep Star 6, Leviathan, Endless Descent, and The Evil Below, and Lords of the Deep were all shot essentially dry for wet, so they faked it. Cameron was actually shooting underwater, so that makes a big difference in shooting time. And it's funny, too, because really, uh, for all the work that they put into it, I mean, The Abyss is, is a beautiful-looking movie, but the underwater scenes don't look that much more believable <laughs> for all the effort and, and trouble that they put into it. You could watch uh, Leviathan and then watch the abyss. Aside from like the bubbles, there really isn't a major difference. So let's start at the beginning of this trend. Now, keep in mind that this is all in anticipation of the abyss, which is the biggest budget and most high profile of all these. Some of the other companies, such as Karolko, you know, they love to spend money on trends. Karolko rushed out, and yes, it was a rush job. Sean S. Cunningham's Deep Star 6 at the very beginning of 1989, January 13th, 1989, Deep Star 6 comes out. With mm -hmm. an $8 million budget, technically making its budget back at the box office, it made $8,143,225 theatrically. So when you count when you count distribution and print costs, it lost. It did not make its budget back. Being distributed by by TriStar Pictures, Deep Star Six came out and basically no one noticed. My problem with Deep Star Six is it's just not that good of a movie. Honestly, I was surprised it had an eight million dollar budget because the movie feels cheap to me. The sets look cheap. The set design is cheap. Most of the cast are waning TV actors. I mean, seriously, of the nine main cast members, seven of them had had just recently canceled TV shows. 
So you've got a mainly TV cast, cheap sets, a monster you don't want to show, and Sean Cunningham, let's face it, guys, he's not the most innovative director that there is out there. Deep Star 6 did not work for me. I like Deep Star 6 a lot. I actually um, had a chat with uh, Sean S. Cunningham a while ago about it, and it's one of his movies that he really he likes like he he really enjoys that movie and he wishes that it was more popular you know he he's happy that he gets a lot of credit for friday the 13th as he should but deep star six is one of those movies that like it's just it's it's always overlooked and uh i think it's a shame i mean yes it does have a lot of tv actors in it but george clooney was a tv actor and I'm not putting them on, on par with that, but I'm saying being an ex-TV actor doesn't automatically make you a bad actor. Well, I, uh, I'm just I'm thinking more along the lines of one of the my two dads being our hero doesn't exactly make me root for him, you know? I thought he was good. He was good. He's he's a good looking guy. And he, you know, I mean, why he he looked like somebody who would have, you know, been an eighties hero. Yeah, uh, he had kind of like a, he had a bit of a Jack Burton vibe to him, I thought. I yeah, thought he was yeah. I thought the only the only actor I loved in this was Miguel Ferrar, but he is such oh, a dirtbag that <laughs> oh. I can't like his character. Well, you like yeah, Miguel Ferrar's is always great, but I mean, the, you know, uh, the my two dads guy who his name's eluding me. Uh, he I thought he Greg was good. Uh, Greg, Greg Avian, yes, Miguel Ferrar is great. Uh, I like Nia Peoples. I thought you know she's she's always pretty. She she's was barely uh, in the movie. She's like the second one killed. But you know, it, she's she's good. It doesn't it doesn't matter. But uh, I I like it. I don't think it looked cheap. I thought the monster looked cool. Uh, I actually you know I wish they would have been able to show it a little bit more. But you know, uh, budget constraints and and whatnot. Overall, I I like it. I I don't see uh, I don't see it as being a bad movie at all. I dig it. Um, I don't. It's not my favorite of the movies that came out to kind of uh, capitalize on. Uh, abyss whether coincidence or not uh but i do like it um i pretty much agree with everything uh, cecil said uh, i don't think it's a cheap looking movie i think the the monster and it actually does look pretty cool it's almost like a really it kind of reminded me of like a really jacked predator like it had like just much bigger versions of everything it had a cool color palette to it I, I, again it, even though the characters in it are tv actors they all did a really good job i like the main guy miguel ferrar really made for a great scumbag like oh, you he really stole, wanted to see him miguel ferrar stole the movie from the rest of the cast. yeah he had the best easily the best death in the whole movie too the um you know the the escape he had pod the explo- which i just, oh, I just yeah. watched that when miguel when miguel ferrar dies from the explosive decompression that's obvious that was obviously a lot gorier yeah you can see the abrupt almost smash cuts away from gore in that, yeah, which really for, it really definitely... wrecks the pacing of the scene when there's oh, yeah. when they're obviously trying to not show something. Yeah, I think yeah, we were definitely supposed to see like like a rib cage or a head explosion or something. But either way, it was still really gruesome. Like you know, his veins popping out in his wrists and like the blood seeping out of his eyes and his ears and shit. A nice gruesome way for such a such a dick bag to to go. But overall, yeah, I I really like it. It it didn't feel cheap i like the miniatures um i thought it did a good job of of uh looking like it was underwater uh, i had a nice straightforward plot to it and i thought it was paced well i thought they they did a good build up 
for the creature. I really like uh, Harry Manfredini's score. Again, you know, working with uh, Sean S. Cunningham of the whole Friday the 13th fame. And I even um, kind of spotted that, uh, and I'm pretty sure Sean, Sean Cunningham had to do with this, that the ending is very reminiscent of the first Friday the 13th, where you have the monster jumping out at the, at the, at the water while they're in the life raft, which I thought was a nice, nice nod, whether intentional or not. It uh, reminded me of Friday the 13th. One of the one of the problems I had with Deep Star Six was the fact that the monster doesn't do much. Yes, the monster is the reason everything is happening, but of the nine main cast members, the monster only kills four of them, and one of them is debatable. He kills the two guys in the underwater's cat, he kills the guy he bites in half, and he kind of maybe kills Nia Peoples. It's, it's kind of vague whether she kind of commits suicide to avoid being killed by it. Cindy Pickens kills herself. Miguel Ferrar kills himself to avoid both of them to avoid the monster. Miguel oh. Ferrar accidentally kills the doctor. So it's like the monster is kind of ineffectual in the whole movie. <laughs> Miguel Ferrar accidentally kills himself. Well, yeah, he, he, no, like... he knew what was going to happen. The doctor was screaming at him. And no, he, he... Re- remember, he hit the button and went, fuck it. And just, yeah, but he's an off. idiot. But That's, he, uh, but he's, he was yeah. kind of played up as a bit of a dumbass, like, uh, just not thinking about it, like just the way he killed uh, the doctor with that blowgun, which again is a nice little gruesome part in the movie, the way they did that. I wasn't really um, just watching it again. I wasn't expecting to see that much violence, but I think with his death, it really is just the guy was just negligent throughout the whole thing. It was him that caused the, um, you know, the, the warheads or whatever to go off because of his choice of commands. So it, it was, I think that was just a guy doomed by his own just dumbassery. Now, since Deep Star 6 didn't really make a lot of money, I don't know what they were thinking about the next film that came out, which would be Leviathan, which I think is the f- most fun of all of these. I'll go yes. on record now as saying I think The Abyss is obviously the most well-made of all of these, but Leviathan is my favorite. I loved Leviathan. I saw this one in the theater. It had a $20 million budget. It was put out by MGM, and no one came again. This one only made 15 of its $20 million budget. I'm not going to go too deep into the background on this because you should just go and watch Cecil's Good Bad Flicks exp- Exploring Leviathan for some great background on this. But this one, the story by David Peoples is essentially, what if Alien and the Thing were set underwater? And that's not necessarily yep. a bad thing because David Peoples is usually, I'd say, quote, a better writer than this, but he he gave an interview to Fangoria back when this came out, and he said he gave the studio what they wanted. They told him, we want Alien Underwater. So mm-hmm. I don't think he had a lot of freedom to make it, I guess, more unique than it was because he gave the studio what they were paying him for. But you've got this a, a cast of Peter Weller, Richard Crenna, Amanda Pays, Daniel Stern, Ernie Hudson, Michael Carmine, Lisa Eilabacher, Gr- Hector Elizondo, and Meg Foster. It's like, that's a fantastic cast. I don't care what Amanda Pays plays. She is always Theora Jones to me. (laughs) She's Theora Jones. I don't care that her character is Elizabeth Williams. She's Theora Jones underwater. That's just something with Amanda Pays. But Leviathan is a fantastic movie. It's got great gore effects, great direction. It's got a good script for what it is. It's got a lot of little nuances and touches. Leviathan, I think, is the is the best of all of these just for pure enjoyment. Agreed. It is the best one. It is my favorite. It's incredibly well paced. The characters are really cool. Everybody feels um everybody feels fleshed out. Um you feel like you really get to know everybody. Gary as all f- 
just because it has um that vibe of the thing. It is like a mix of alien and the thing just underwater. Uh, this thing absorbs the characters like their face, their faces show up on its body and it's just really disturbing looking. Uh, the cast just knocks it out of the park. But I think really the, the I mean, you said it all the really the best way that I can uh, sum this one up would be to say Peter Weller punches Meg Foster in the face in today's social climate. I don't think you could do that. Her character no, totally you could deserved not. it. Her character totally be, deserved it, but I don't think in today's her, social environment, you could not have Peter Weller just decking no, her the way he does. That would immediately be misogyny, violence against women, but Meg Foster is an evil corporate bitch. She's the Dick Jones of the movie, and she totally deserves to get slugged in the face by Robocop. The Abyss is the better you know, movie, but Leviathan is the one that I always come back to. I enjoy it more. It is alien underwater mixed with elements of the thing, but it's still just a fun, kick-ass movie. There's so much going for it. The great cast, uh, the score, the uh, the whole thing just breezes by. It's not it it it's not slow, but they still spend enough time with character development. Like they really don't get into the whole monster element of it for quite a while. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, you know, they, they kind of let the characters build and you kind of get to know them and whatnot. And even when, um, six pack, you know, drinks the uh, vodka and gets the virus, even then they're still kind of giving you time to get to know the characters. So when, you know, the shit finally hits the fan, it, uh, it doesn't feel rushed, but it doesn't feel like it took forever to get there either, which is mm-hmm. really hard to do. Cause I know a lot of people will, will bitch and complain. About I, I have how... a feeling, I have a feeling that is due to David people's you got to remember, David Peoples, this is the writer of 12 Monkeys and Blade Runner and Soldier and other movies like that. David Peoples is a good writer. So even though he seemed a little hamstrung by We Want an Alien Underwater, I think he put as much quality into it as as he possibly could. Yeah, I think he really made his own movie. Like, uh, as Cecil said, it does have vibe, a vibe of Alien in the thing. Uh, With the characters, the atmosphere, just everything really felt like its own thing, even though it it was uh, capitalized on the Abyss kind of film and it was meant to be alien underwater. He he really ran with it and made it his own thing. And I think that that also makes Leviathan stand out as as one of the better ones. Another one of the reasons that it kind of feels alien-esque and maybe a little more of like a an actual used future in quotes is that the production designer was Ron Cobb. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the corridors are definitely reminiscent of like the Nostromo. Even just like the lived in crew quarters and everything, they look mm-hmm. like like the Nostromo in all honesty. And the reason yeah. I put the reason I put future in quotes is they never tell us when this movie takes place, but the technology mm-hmm. obviously makes it into the future. They, they're still using VHS tapes. And they're, they're still using backlit green screen monitors on their computers and whatnot. So it's kind of like this is like a lo-fi future. Yeah, it's uh, it's even kind of like the the future in the alien. Like um, like in Alien, it's a very lo-fi kind of future. It's obviously meant to be taking place, you know, hundreds of years or whatever in the future where we have starships. But yeah, you're still you still have like very cheap looking computers and tapes and and whatnot. So it's kind of it's kind of bizarre and cool. Actually, at the same Alien, time. actually, Alien going from 2015. Actually, Alien only takes place about 65 years in the future. 
but you got to remember that was also made 30 years ago, so would have been about 95 years in the future from when it was made. On on the the Blu-ray for Leviathan, they were talking uh, some of the special effects guys, the Stan Winston group. They were talking about how they had 60 different designs for the monster, and they took it to the director. And they were like, you know, which, what do you like? What don't you like? And he liked all of them. them. (laughs) So I just love the, okay, George. And they just, they said they threw everything into the monster. So it, you know, it had like, you know, the faces of the crew, arms, hair, teeth, scales, Elbacher's boob is hanging off the side of it somewhere. I mean, it's like they put every single thing they could into it. It's hilarious. Because it's yeah. like, all right, well, this is just this genetic mess. Wow, 1989, though, too. Mm-hmm. Like, um, well, the, <laughs> since I was just watching this last night, there's a nice, wow, that's an 89 reference in the movie, too. When they're going through the the, the pilferage from the Leviathan, mm-hmm. at, at one point, Amanda Pays goes, she pulls out a watch, and she goes, a Timex, and it's still ticking. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, is that such a late 80s reference? <laughs> Yeah, I, I always was. Uh, I like the Kitty Does Kiev thing. Where, it's where not he's really like, Kitty Does Kiev. Yeah, it's such a, like, just well made, just entertaining movie. Freaking Peter Weller is great. Amanda Pays is like, and like, oh, the other thing with the end, too, where she, uh, um, Meg Foster, not only left them down there to die, but basically told everyone on the surface that they were already dead. So that mm-hmm. they wouldn't even attempt to rescue them. Yeah. So it's like that's evil. She should be lucky that like if that was uh, the the typical sci-fi movie like evil corporate white guy, the monster would have eaten him, or she would or he would have gotten shot with a rocket or something. Like he would have had a much worse fate. But because it was you know just a woman, she got a you know a punch to the face. Even though like <laughs> what she, she did was. More. She deserved more for being that horrendously evil. Well, no. She deserved more, but there's just something so satisfying about just Peter Weller punching someone in the face. Just just that crack. You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh, you made it, crack. You know? He just has it, that it, just it, steely, that steely In a way, it's a sucker punch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, maybe I'm reading too much into, into this. I saw them setting up a sequel because there's a specific shot after we know that Bowman is infected, but she's not showing symptoms yet. They get Mm. done with their last day of mining and her and Peter Weller share a drink from the same bottle of water and they do a close up of him drinking it. And then remember she's infected. And then later on when he saws the monster's arm off, when Ernie Hudson is holding the, the door open, this creature scratches him, which is also what infected Hector Elizondo's character. So maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I read into it that Beck was infected when he made it to the surface. He just isn't showing symptoms yet. So it it almost seems like they were kind of subtly setting up a sequel, or that was just miscellaneous crap and I'm seeing what's not there. Maybe they were trying to do like a dark ending uh, where you kind of go, oh, oh, well, it's not quite as happy as things seem. But I really would have liked the sequel. I really liked the uh, just the creature design and the the way that the the thing was in the movie was very uh, original for what it was. So it would have been cool to see a Leviathan too. It's uh, it's too bad we didn't get that. Well, the reason we didn't get that is absolutely no one went to see this in the theater. Oh, it man. lost a ton of money, not just the five million dollars, because when you t- got to take in everything else, it lost a lot of money. So. And MGM basically wrote the movie off. 
And then we had, a month later, Roger Corman's entry into this, Lords of the Deep, starring Priscilla Barnes and Bradford Dillman. This one is so much fun for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I, I can't find any budget information. If this thing has more than a $100,000 budget, I will be legitimately shocked. The sets look like sets from the 70s TV show Space 1999. Costumes look like something out of Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. The, 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 the effects, Bradford Dillman is the evil corporate scumbag, and his office in, in the undersea base is clearly an office. He's got, he's got like Venetian blinds that light is coming through underwater. <laughs> this thing is so low budget, and it's so brutally miscast. Priscilla Barnes is a fine actress. But with her nice persona and her little cupy voice, I do not take her as this Ripley-type character that she's meant to be. She's just so miscast. The movie, it's only an hour and 14 minutes with credits, full opening credits and full closing credits. So that brings the runtime down to maybe an hour nine. And then maybe another 15 minutes of footage from Galaxy of Terror and Battle Beyond the Stars is inserted at various points. I don't even <laughs> know if this is an actual movie. It's so fun. But I cannot say Lords of the Deep is a good movie. Did either of you guys see Lords of the Deep? Unfortunately not. I saw it a long time ago, so I really don't remember much of it. I watched it last night, and I, I had forgotten just how cheap, both in budget and in tone, this thing felt. Now we get to the one that none of us have seen. The Italians, of course, had to throw their, their hat into this ring with <laughs> the Evil Below, which, since none of us have seen it, I'm going to sum it up. An American with the most Italians think this is how Americans' names really are. Max Cash is a down-on-his-luck fisherman who has to go and try and remove treasure from a sunken barge in the, in the Bahamas that is haunted by ghosts who control a sea monster. It sounds glorious. It does. Uh, I was looking at that one on IMDb, but I wasn't able to find a copy to watch. I unfortunately found out about that one too late, but yeah, that one just, it looks and sounds just everything that a uh, little Italian exploitation should be. Yeah. All I can say is uh, roll fizzle beef, uh, deep sea diver. Max Cash. <laughs> Stump God, Junkman was, of the sea. Was it? Oh. Chest McLarge huge. Yes, Dick McLarge huge. Dick McLarge huge. <laughs> so, well, then after that, we get to the one that everyone was anticipating, James Cameron's The Abyss, which I'm of two minds on this one. I saw it in the theater in 89, and I hated it. I saw it again on video in 90, and I hated it. The hmm. theatrical cut of The Abyss is a goddamn mess. It's a terrible film. On the other hand, I think the director's cut, adding 28 minutes back into the film can really change a movie, is a fantastic movie. So when I say I like and hate The Abyss, that's why. The theatrical cut, I do hate. The director's cut, I do love. The Abyss is an, I'm going, the director's cut is a very well-paced movie. It's got great characters, great story. The characters act with motivation. One of the things the, direct, the theatrical cut was full of was, why did that character do that? 
oh, because there was a five-minute scene that we cut out. None of the <laughs> characters in the theatrical cut have a motivation for what they're doing. Now all of a sudden, Coffee has a motivation of why he's freaking out. Now all of a sudden, Midnight has a motivation for what she's doing. Now all of a sudden, we have a motivation for for Bud and, and What's-Her-Face's relationship and all that. Cutting out all the motivations made a big deal in how... I don't care if it got the running time down by a half hour. It made the film terrible to me. And considering the film only made $20 million over its $70 million budget, it wasn't the theatrical cut was not the blockbuster that Fox was hoping for. I think they should have just let Cameron have his director's cut straight up. But I think this is the most ecological... It's, this is the most message of all of these movies. There's a yeah. clear anti-pro-environment, anti-nuke, end-the-cold-war message in this thing. It's it's not pervasive until the end, and it doesn't feel like it's shoved down your throat. I, I think the director's cut of this movie is absolutely fantastic. I saw the uh, theatrical cut on you know home video when it first came out, and I liked it. I thought it was okay, but I had a lot of uh, you know the the problems that you had. I didn't like hate it like you did, but uh, there wasn't as much motivation. There did seem to be a lot missing. Like it did seem like uh, things were progressing a little too quickly and characters were acting unusual out of nowhere. Then uh, years later, when the special edition DVD came out that put that, you know, the uh, the tidal wave uh, subplot back. Actually, in. I'm going to interrupt you before that, that that all those subplots and all the scenes were put back in on the sci fi channel ran a special edition with the debut of all those scenes and the correct ending in widescreen. So all those scenes actually debuted on sci-fi before it came out on video or DVD with those. Well, I picked up the, the DVD and I was very excited because I remember I saw it in a magazine. I don't remember which, you know, one of those like special effects, you know, star log or something where they had a picture of the tidal wave and they were talking about this this whole big chunk of the abyss that was missing. So I was really excited when it finally did come out and I picked it up. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought that uh, it it fleshed the movie out more. It, it gave a lot more character motivation. It did show a lot more. I mean, there was that whole, there's so many special effects that they had to cut, which I'm sure was not cheap. Made the movie more whole, made the ending make more sense. And The ending uh, didn't come as out of nowhere as it does in the theatrical cut. Because mm -hmm. it's like the theatrical cut, you're moving along, moving along, moving along. Then the last five minutes are like out of a different movie almost. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it is definitely the better movie. And it, it is a genuinely good movie that deserves the praise that it gets. But I still like Leviathan better. I had seen the theatrical one and uh, obviously not in theaters, but I, I do remember watching it. And I remember scratching my head and going, why the f is Michael Bean going crazy for no reason? And then I saw the, you know, the extended, the director's cut. And it's like, oh, well, OK, this movie is better than I remember it being. I, I do like it. I think it's a really well done movie. It has some uh, some great both uh, both practical and uh, digital effects that uh, really shows that uh, Jim, James Cameron knows what he's doing when it comes to visual stuff. There's a nice uh, some of the CG was a nice predecessor to what he what he would do in Terminator 2. I love the characters. I love seeing uh Seeing Michael Bean as a bad guy in general is a kind of a treat because you don't get to see it too often. I think he does a good job of it. He has a good, uh, good crazy-eyed look to him, and Ed Harris is always awesome. I respect it for what it is. I definitely agree that it uh, deserves the praise that it gets. 
But as as Cecil said, um, in, in my case, any day of the week, I would rather watch Leviathan. I just think that one has um, more of a fun premise. It uh, moves along a little bit quicker, and I think the the characters are just cooler. And I don't know, given the given the choice, I'm I'm usually going to go toward Peter Weller. I, I do think this one does have a great cast. There's only one scene that bothers me in the entirety of the abyss, and that is the whole bringing what's-your-face back from the dead. Fight! You're a fighter! You don't quit on me! That is the most cliched... It would not have been cliched if she had gone up and died then. That Mm. scene bothers me in every cut of the film. Other than that, I think the characters all act relatively logically. And I want to point out to today's new generation, Ed Harris is at the bottom of the ocean, at one of the deepest parts of the ocean, with fluid in his lungs and no light, and he's able to text full words and only make two typos. You can <laughs> you can text full words, goddammit. <laughs> the success of The Abyss. And like I said, after marketing and whatnot, it technically lost money, but it, it was overall a success. We go into... The last one of these movies that came out, which would actually not come out until 1990, although the, my VHS says 1991 as a copyright, which would be The Rift slash Endless Descent. Now, I haven't seen this one, but I've watched Cecil's video, so rather than me vamping through it, Cecil, do you want to explain to us The Rift slash Endless Descent? The Rift slash Endless Descent is just, it's it's a really fun sci-fi horror movie it actually it starts off sci-fi and then it really turns into like horror towards the end uh you've got a young jack scalia and uh arlie ermy uh what's his name uh ray wise they're all going in this experimental sub and they're investigating this rift uh that goes down like deeper into the ocean than they previously knew about and then when they get yeah, down it's there so deep that they don't need pressure suits to swim outside the sub because <laughs> science is for pussies well no because <laughs> then they find that place where they can go up and then there's you know it's it's fully pressurized so <laughs> they they go they go into uh the rift and they find this cave and then when they're in there they find the real reason they were sent down there is there is this uh, government facility that's been doing all this genetic research, and there are these little freaky-ass monster tentacle things that come out and just start eating everyone. Okay, I gotta gotta ask this. Genetic research, does that ever not go bad? Have you ever seen a movie where genetic research has actually not turned into some horrific, you know, it's not come out as some horrific outcome? Nope. Yeah, genetic research always ends badly. You know, there's never it's never like, you know, we went in and we were trying to make a better this and we made it and everything's better now. It's always We were like, trying to make a soda additive and we accidentally cured cancer. Right. <laughs> it's no, we were trying to uh we're trying to make a, a dog and merge it with uh, a bear and now it's mauling everyone and oh god, dog bear. <laughs> but oh, but but then you got Lance Henriksen hunting it down. W- with endless descent. Now, certain actors get typecast. Like, off mic, we, the three of us, were joking around earlier today about how Michael Bean basically plays the same character in anything. And yeah. I, I pointed out, have you ever seen Seventh Sign, the Demi Moore movie, where he plays her husband and he's a brain surgeon? You don't buy it for a second, because it's Michael Bean. I love the guy. Don't mistake this. But there are certain types of characters, like, when he plays a FEMA, a FEMA scientist in the miniseries Asteroid, you're like, no. Not buying it. It's Michael Bean. Yeah. It's like, why mm-hmm. isn't he shooting anybody? Exactly. 
and in this you got Ray Wise as the traitor. That's kind of like like in Best of the Best too. Why cast Meg Foster in that movie and not have her betray anybody? That's yeah. like having Ray Weiss play a good guy. Oh, gee, Ray Weiss betrayed them. Cecil didn't see that coming. <laughs> no, wasn't expecting that at all. But then going back and watching it again, like years and years later, I'm like, all right, well, there's Ray Weiss. We all know who the traitor is. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes not will he betray them, but at what point in the movie will he be revealed as the traitor? Exactly, because yeah. they start off, they're like, we've got a mole. And I'm like, it's Ray Wise. <laughs> He's there. Of course it's Ray Wise. Yeah. <laughs> like, at the, like at the beginning of Leviathan, when Meg Foster, you see it, it, it seems like she's not that bad of a character and really does have their best interests, like how she sells out the doctor to back in everything. Kind of go, all right, maybe she's going to do the right thing. And then it's like, oh, wait, that's right. It's Meg Foster. Yeah, nope. <laughs> And you know what? Yeah. Meg Foster is probably the sweetest person ever in real life. Now, all of these movies failed except for The Abyss. Why do you think 1989, and I'm lumping The Rift Endless Descent in there just for clarity's sake, why do you guys think that all of these movies came out in 1989, but only one of them actually worked? Because usually when you do these trends, more work than don't, and I'm talking as hits. Only one of these six made money. So why do you, do you think it was the audience in 1989 that was just sick of, we've got six of these coming out? <laughs> but literally, that's one every two months on average. We've got an underwater monster movie coming out. Or was it just something about the movies like, like Leviathan and Deep Star Six both have huge cult audiences today? They didn't mm -hmm. back in 89. Is it the audience's fault? Or was it the market at the time's fault? I'd say the market at the time, just because, I mean, come on, you, you're comparing, uh, you got to compare the fact that Abyss was released by James Cameron and likely had a hell of a lot of uh, people backing it. Uh, a, a much 20th larger, Century Fox. Yeah, a much larger theatrical uh, distribution. So I think that that in itself would be why it made a hell of a lot more money than any of the other ones that came out. And also probably a bit of the audience, too, because it's like, OK, well, we've already seen the abyss. Why the fuck do I have to go see this one? Oh, big deal. It's another uh, people going under the water and being attacked by an alien thing. Bah, it's probably just um, it's it's the, the cynicism of the, the of the audience seeing uh, kind of sensing that, oh, well, this is just a cash grab. I'm not going to see this. And uh, they just ended up fucking themselves because and leviathan because that movie deserved a hell of a lot more praise and deserved to make a hell of a lot more money and i really would have liked to have seen a sequel so so fuck you 1989 audience do you think though that it might have something to do with the fact that the abyss is a sci-fi movie that is relatively accessible to a general audience whereas every single one of the other five are straight up horror movies do you think that mm. there was technically two different audiences between the other five and the abyss? Do you think that played a factor in it too? Um, no, I think really what, what it came down to was that the abyss had a much larger marketing budget and it was probably pushed really hard. And the mindset was probably something along the lines of, well, you know, the James Cameron movies coming out uh, this August. Why do I want to watch these crappy knockoff movies? Because The Abyss was marketed as like a mystery underwater and a character piece. Deep Star Six and Leviathan, for example, were marketed as horror movies. They were marketed towards the alien audience. I think mm -hmm. The Abyss was marketed differently 
than the others, even though the same people who like Deep Star 6 are probably going to like The Abyss and vice versa. The marketing, the posters, the trailers were so on different sides of the aisle. I think that did create a separation there. I I think, uh, you know, yeah, uh, it was it was definitely the marketing. And but the, the thing that's funny, I mean, Alien was a huge success, you know, was a lot like Leviathan. Who knows? The, the, the crowds are fickle. Movies that you think are going to be monumental successes, just for whatever reason, they just don't land at the right time. They don't come out. The public's not really in the mood for. I mean, there any number of factors can go into you know why a movie is or is not successful. Yeah, I think it did. Um, just with how Abyss was definitely a different kind of movie. It was more of like a, mis- a mysterious thing. The aliens weren't necessarily like uh, the kind of violent threat that the 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 aliens were in the other movies. Although I do want to say, if they had like started punching Ed Harris in the face and still like like face raping him, that would have been awesome because they're so cute and that they, they look like stuffed <laughs> animals and stuff. If they turned out to be these violent little things, now that would have been a plot <laughs> twist. That would have been a hell of a twist for sure. But but yeah, I, I think with um, with movies like Deep Star Six and with movies like Leviathan. They were really more um, geared in sort of that uh, sci-fi horror genre film kind of style. They, they wanted to mimic uh, kind of the, the alien presence along with or piggyback a bit on the on the forthcoming new James Cameron film that's sure to be a hit. And, and so in that case, I think maybe it sort of made that mistake because people were very amped up and excited to see this new sort of this this mystery in, in dealing with uh, aliens and underwater stuff and underwater exploration. And the other the other two coming out, it's like they kind of look at that and go, well, it's just alien in the water. Like, what do I care about that? Like, it's just people, I think, being uh, being kind of cynical and jaded and going, well, I've seen this before. It's just alien in the water. I'm just going to go and see, you know, the abyss. So I, I do think it was um, marketed in kind of that in, in kind of a way where they figure it would have been a bet because, hey, you know, Alien did well and I'm sure people are going to see it, the abyss. So let's combine these. And then it kind of backfired because uh, I think audiences just went, well, we've seen this before. It's just in a kind of a different setting. Going from looking back at 1989 that we all are saying, like, I mean, I didn't enjoy Deep Star Six as much as you guys did, but Deep Star Six, Leviathan, Endless Descent, Lords of the Deep and whatnot. Do you think that people appreciate these mo- these movies more now than they did then? Do you think it is kind of a movie like Leviathan was always destined to be a cult film? No, I think like I, I could see Deep Star Six being more of a cult film, but Leviathan it it really does have all the elements of what should have been a hit. You've got you know top sh- uh, top tier special effects. You've got a great cast. You've got a great score. You've got a good director. I mean, it, it, it Ernie Hudson's and Ghostbusters 2, which came out the same year. I, I, I don't know if they did this, but you could market it as Ernie Hudson from the Ghostbusters is in this. And you had Richard a, a Grena, I think, was doing either was it Rambo 2 or Rambo 3? It would have um, been Rambo 3 at that point. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Peter Weller was about to do Robocop 2, I think. So, yeah, it's it is kind of this uh, cross promotion of all these actors that are that are also going to be in their own uh, respective franchises. Yeah, they could have they could have done it with, you know, pull, pulling the director in. They could have even done, you know, from the director of Rambo First Blood Part two, because Rambo was huge. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if they were to do that, you know, they would they would totally pull off of that because they love doing that now, you know, from the director of from the producer of and, uh, you know, to get that name recognition there, all the elements of what should have been a hit. 
and mm-hmm. just for whatever reason it wasn't. So I don't think it was destined. I think it was destined to be a hit. It just for whatever reason it didn't happen right away, and now it's become a cult hit. That said, do you think that these movies could be marketed with with modern techniques today? If you were trying to sell this movie today, would a modern style trailer, say, fit Leviathan or Deep Star Six or even The Abyss more, or were they just products of 1989? I think you could. I think you could market Leviathan and The Abyss, but uh, the other ones are a little bit more time capsules. Yeah. So you know, but but I think that uh, you know both of them you know could be marketed today with using the uh, you know today's kind of things, but especially with with Leviathan again going back to the cast because all of them, granted, they're not all uh, as big a name as they were back then, but now a lot of people know who they are more. So you'd be like, oh, well, you've got Richard Crenna, you got Peter Weller, you got uh, Ernie Hudson, and that, oh my God, wow, you know, all these guys in one movie. Uh, and then they would push, like I said, with the, uh, the director of Rambo. And I think it, I mean, there's a possibility that it would probably do better now, but um, more than likely what they're going to do, I'm I'm surprised they haven't announced a remake yet, quite frankly. I don't know if you've seen this one, Peter, but I know Cecil and I have talked about it. Anyone that watches the pilot episode of the TV series Odyssey 5, there's a great joke in that. Right before the Earth explodes, the last signal that Peter Weller gets as the shuttle captain is Leviathan. (laughs) So you know that had to be an in-joke that Manny Cotto snuck into that. Absolutely. That kind of shows that the, the, the legacy that even something of a, quote, failure like Leviathan had. That's the only one of the failures of 89 that is still fondly remembered. You don't see people making Deep Star 6 references on current TV shows. You don't see Lords of the Deep references. You do still see Abyss and Leviathan references, though. I I, I just think 1989, it's just weird that you had six of these in one (laughs) year. Because even when you got the trends, like, you know, you've got the, the double asteroid movies and you've got the double volcano movies and whatnot, you usually only have one or two, maybe three that are all similar. To have mm-hmm. six in one year, I actually think that's relatively unique. It and is. I think the, the, the people who mm-hmm. were not alive in 89, like I said, I was 14, so I was totally cognizant of the marketing and whatnot. And I was reading about these in Fangoria and all this. And I don't know if you'd ever have that kind of a whirlwind of weird underwater monster marketing again. What are your final thoughts on the underwater monster movies of 89? I think um, they're all really worth watching, at least the ones that I've seen. Um, I still need to see Lords of the Deep. But I think when it comes to like movies like Endless Descent, a.k.a. The Rift, uh, Leviathan, Deep Star Six, uh, Abyss, they're all really cool in their own ways. And I think it's, it's, it's a really um, interesting time capsule of, uh, of a year where, I mean, I mean every, there's always a trend in, in movies. And there is uh, usually a year where a bunch of the same types of movies will come out, like the Saving the President from terrorist uh trend in 2013 which i swear that was uh in my mind at least it, it felt like it was a build-up to a bad dudes movie starring gerard butler and channing tatum but i actually thought that the that the gerard butler movie was a discarded script for under siege 3 you tell me you couldn't have totally seen seagal in that role if it had been made in say 96 would have worked as that or even as a, even as a diehard plot, I think. It had a, it had a really good like uh, late 80s 
uh, to early 90s action vibe to it. They're really awesome movies. I specifically recommend Leviathan because I think that's just a kick-ass movie with a heap of rewatch value. But it's really it's really interesting. I don't think we'll we'll quite see that again. Uh, other than I mean, I'm sure every year you have um, a, a movie that that comes out that's popular, and then the Asylum will make its knockoff. I mean, that's that's been making its rounds for years, and it's a perfectly average thing at this point. But I don't really quite think we're going to see an, another. I mean, I'd love to see this again because it's really cool to see all these different takes on a similar plot. Uh, to, to have six of them come out and possibly even more. That for all we know, there's other ones. Um, but it's I think that's really interesting, and I would really like to see that again. Um, with with really any given genre, would be it action or sci-fi or horror, because it's it's really cool to have that variety. And I think movies kind of make their rounds as as cult favorites due to that because there's so many and then, and so many of them go on to have different fan bases like like Deep Star 6 may not have the following that a movie like Leviathan has but it's a total niche movie it's a total cult film in its own right you know fans of uh, of Sean S Cunningham and Friday the 13th are, are more sort of into that so it's ingrained more into the sort of low budget horror world and it's cool that it has that following so I would I would really love to to see that happen again. It's it's unfortunate that it doesn't happen as often because we we usually just get, you know, Asylum making its knockoffs and then you have the one big uh blockbuster movie and I don't know, that that kind of sucks. It feels like we're we're not getting as much as we used to. Kind of piggybacking off what what Peter said, it's now we're getting uh a slight variation on that. We're getting the monumental budget movie and then we're getting the medium budget movie and then we're getting the asylum knockoff. So whereas in 89 with all these undersea movies, we had the big movie, but then you had a nice variety of uh, different things. You know, Leviathan and and uh, Deep Star Six uh, were both, you know, decent sized budgets. The Endless Descent had a good budget. And then Lords of the Deep was kind of the the, the low budget thing. And then mm-hmm. uh, the the other one we we don't know because we need to see uh, big McLarge <laughs> huge uh, underwater. But <laughs> Max um, Cash, Max Cash. But even still, it pro- I mean probably had a low budget. But but even still, we had this wide variety of different takes on a similar subject. Where now we'll get if we're lucky, we'll get three. Sometimes we might get like, but and I mean, and, and usually the Asylum one is the one that you watch for laughs. I think it was kind of a golden lost age of exploitation because nowadays you would not have Leviathan or Deep Star 6 with the kind of budgets that they had or being released wide in theaters. They would be asylum films or Mm -hmm. at best they would be the relative higher end direct to video. They would these movies would not be theatrical anymore. And I think that's something that's a kind of a different topic of what changed in movie going. I, I think if you weren't around in eighty nine, you should watch all of these movies in the order that they came out to kind of relive what being a movie a sci fi moviegoer was like in eighty nine. Cecil, if people want to plunge to the depths for you, where would they go? They can go to uh, escapistmagazine.com. Uh, good oh, back. you remembered the whole Addy this week, huh? I know. <laughs> you think I've only been there a month now. You think I would have known month, month and a half now. But now um, you can't remember when you started. Great. Well, it was the end of end of April. <laughs> that was why I'm like, well, it was officially. So, all right. I've been there for a few months. <laughs> <laughs> 
escapistmagazine.com, as well as goodbadflix.com and geekjuicemedia.com. Peter doesn't trust his rebreather. Can't trust anything without bubbles. Where would people see him doing that? <laughs> uh, you can see me doing that uh, on Twitter at Cinematica, and Facebook, The Cinematicus, YouTube, The Cinematicus, and 1201beyond.com. But uh, no, not the bubbles thing, the, uh, the punching Meg Foster thing. I, I like that. You can find me at 1201beyond.com, and you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And then there's also a Payatron. I know how it's actually pronounced. I have more fun saying Payatron. <laughs> it sounds like a Decepticon that way. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, there, there is a Patreon slash Payatron for Radiodrome, if you go and look that up. Also, I am now a columnist for Fangoria Magazine with the column VHS that you can find every month in Fangoria Magazine starting this month. Go and buy a Fangoria, damn it.
Radio Drone is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.